We're going to study in the next few uh, the weeks here together the miracles of Jesus. There's a reason for this because last year we talked about the parables of Jesus, which is really his talk. But the miracles of Jesus are his power. And remember, <clears throat> sooner or later, your religion's got to have power. It's not just about talk. It has to be able to do something that other religions cannot do. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says he's going to go to the church at Corinth where they'd already been hearing sermons from different speakers. And what Paul said in chapter 4 verse 19 is when I get there, I'm going to check these preachers out and find out whether they have any power. Because in verse 20, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, it's a matter of power. So you have to be able to do something. You can't just have great sermons. When Jesus preached, he impressed people, no doubt about it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it was said, the last verse in chapter of Matthew chapter 7 said, and when he was through, the people marveled because he spoke as one having authority and not as the other scribes and Pharisees. He was different when he talked. There was maybe a tone to his voice, maybe a look in his eyes, maybe the words themselves. They went places no other speaker could go. But a chapter later in Matthew chapter 8, when he calms the storm in the middle of the sea, the disciples, these are the words of Matthew, were amazed and they asked themselves, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? A chapter after that, when he raised the paralytic, it says, all the town was amazed and they stood in awe and they praised God that he should give such power to a man. Have you ever seen or been part of a miracle? I hope when you hear these stories, you'll put your story inside of it and identify with one of the characters. And more than that, I hope you'll walk away praying and believing that God will do the same kind of thing for you that he did for them. When I was uh, in grad school studying Revival. I read a book on the history of revival, several of them actually, and one of them had a parable at the beginning of the book that I copied and I've saved it. It's never far from me. It reads this. When the Baal Shem had a difficult task before him, he would go to a certain place in the woods, light a fire, say the prayers, and what he set out to perform was done. A generation later, when they were faced with the same task, they would go to the same place in the woods and they would say, we can no longer light the fire, but we can say the prayers. And what they wanted done became a reality. Again, a generation came later, and when they had a difficult task to perform, they went into the woods and they said, we can no longer light the fire. We no longer know the prayers, but at least we know the place where these things were done. And the thing that they asked for was done, but there came a generation after them who, when they had a difficult task to perform, would say from their golden chairs in their castles, 
We cannot light the fire. We no longer know the prayers. We don't even know the place where these things were done. But we can tell ourselves the stories and hope that the stories have the effect of the other three. I made a note to myself that day that said, I wonder if we are a generation twice removed from a miracle. We no longer can light the fire. We don't know the prayers or even the place, but we have stories of what happened long ago when God did things for our ancestors, the likes of which we ourselves have never seen. We can tell stories of how groceries showed up on the porch, how checks arrived in the mail the day the bill was due for the very amount, and no one knew it. We have stories of little churches gaining the favor of city officials, of people with addictions that were turned around 180 degrees in just a few hours of marriages that were headed to the courts reconciled in just days. We have the stories. And sometimes I think by telling ourselves the stories, we like to believe that we are in a day when miracles are still happening, but what we have, in fact, are stories. I think we have almost a, almost a love-hate relationship with miracles, if you don't mind me. Yeah, one of the downsides of a scientific age, for all that it's done, is that in a scientific age like ours, understanding outgrows reason or uh, faith. So it used to be that understanding would fit in a garden, if you will, with other things like imagination and faith. But in a scientific age, one of those things grows faster. It's not just that faith goes away. That isn't true. It's that understanding gets so large and overgrown that it requires everything else to kind of fit within the shadow of it. And the problem with this is that all the while our understanding has increased, our lives themselves are pretty much the same. They're just as fragile as they ever were. We don't die of the same diseases, but we die of other ones. We're living till we're older, but we're still dying. We know why things happen, but we still can't keep them from happening. We're still subject to the same forces. We're only more intelligent about those forces, but our lives themselves, even the soul within us, we know because of behavioral sciences, we can now touch regions of the human soul we couldn't identify before, but we still can't change them. It's as if we can name the demon, but we still can't cast it out. And so all the while, we see our understanding getting stronger and stronger. Our lives still haven't changed. And so we crave and we need a miracle, and we know we do, and yet all the while we explain them away. We ask for God to do things that only God can do and then plan on things that only we can do. I think I was in line this morning, 4.30, behind two people buying lotto tickets. I'm thinking, seriously, you're buying lotto tickets at 4.30 in the morning? They're hoping for a stroke of luck, but they're not building their budget around it. 
We've done this with miracles, haven't we? I'll take one. (laughs) But we don't build a life around it. We don't have a budget that needs it. We have settled into a way, a pattern, a life that works quite well without a miracle. And I wonder if there is in every one of us a craving for God to do something miraculous again. I believe that miracles are to religion what romance is to love. You can have it without it. But why on earth would you? Huh? You're quiet this morning. You understand your love and your religion is a lot more persuasive and a lot more mysterious if there's romance or if there is the power of God doing things that only God can do. And so one of the things I want to do this morning Uh, at large is just kind of revive your interest for God to do the miraculous again because I think we used to we used to have that dream that hope but I think over time we've sort of let it go we've settled in and said that's not gonna happen so settle down into this life that you have and live within its boundaries I want to be clear about this when I speak of miracles I'm not talking about the suspension of the laws of nature. I'm, some of you are, uh, you're smarter than me and you can, st- you can straighten me out afterward. I'm not even sure nature has laws. It might have patterns, but not laws. And there's a difference between the two. Laws govern things, patterns follow them. So if nature or creation flows according to patterns, the patterns themselves can't exclude anything because they follow something. They don't lead it. They don't control it. There is no pattern until something else has happened again and again. And so patterns, as I say, can't exclude things because they belong to the thing they would have excluded. I'm not talking about the suspension of nature. I'm talking about God pushing at the boundaries of what we know of creation or nature. And I'm not talking about a shortcut. Often I think in our society we pray for the miraculous to be the short version of getting something done. But so we can be clear Whenever there is a miracle, it still fits within the structures of nature. It may be a virgin birth, but it still takes nine months for the baby to get here. He may turn water into wine, but wine will still intoxicate if you drink it. He can feed the 5,000, but after they eat it, they still have to digest it. He can raise the dead, but somebody's got to take the grave clothes off There can be 153 fish in the net, but somebody's still got to clean them. (laughs) 
So we're not talking about something that's way out there. We're talking about God pushing at the boundaries that we have established because of the patterns that we have fallen into and the predictability of our lives. And the room, it just seems to me in our day and age, is getting smaller and smaller. Miracles in the Gospel of John are called signs. <laughs> and a sign uh, is like a clue. If you've been on a treasure hunt, you've had clues. Somebody puts a clue somewhere, and when you find it and you open it up, you have to think about it. You have to look at it, but it, it, it's, it's, it's pointing to something beyond itself. So some years ago when we were in our 30s, like 100 years ago, we uh, were always part of these treasure hunts, and it was in Port Huron, Michigan. And um, I remember one in particular, you opened the bag and it was a light bulb. Now, the second, I mean, if you open a light bulb in Marion, uh, that can go in a thousand directions. But when you open a light bulb in Port Huron, the first thing everybody thinks of is, wait a minute, this is the Fort Gratiot Lighthouse. So then you hold the light bulb and you rush off to the lighthouse and sure enough, that's where the next clue is. You can hold the light bulb if you want to. You can use it. You can screw it in. It'll work. But at the same time, it points to something bigger than just the thing that works. It points to something deeper and overarching and so miracles are that way in John. When you see them, you're never just to look at it. They work and you can hold them and they're real, but they point to something that is bigger than themselves, overarching. So C.S. Lewis would say that in miracles, God is only doing in local versions, in small letters, the same thing he is doing with the entire world in letters too large for anyone to notice. It's never disconnected from the greater thing that God is doing. So having a miracle in my life then is less about getting God over into what I'm doing and it's more about getting in the line of fire into what he is already doing because they tend to follow his work, not mine. This first sign, says uh, John, was the turning of water into wine. Now I love this miracle, especially in Wesleyan churches. John says, on the third day, there was a wedding. That's verse 1. And then in verse 11, he says, when the whole thing is over, he says, and this was the first sign that Jesus would perform. And that word first doesn't mean number one. It's that word arche. We get our word overarching or archangel or archetype. We get our word from that. It, it means this is the archetype miracle. This isn't the first miracle he ever did. That was probably in Luke 5. This is the miracle by which you interpret all miracles. This is the framework within everything else that Jesus is doing fits. 
And can I say it's important to me that the first thing he ever does is a wedding. Not because I think it values marriage, though it does. I think it because it frames in what salvation is to Jesus. It's a wedding. It isn't a courtroom. Some of you came in this morning with an idea that all of life ends in a courtroom at the dock, but in John, all of life ends in a chapel at an altar. Salvation is not so much about being made clean as it is about being united to one with whom you have walked a long time. And so the predominant feeling in salvation is not just reverence and awe, it's joy and anticipation. And sin is not a transgression so much as it is a breaking of the marriage vows. And so what one feels when he sins is not just guilt, he feels a sadness because the vows have been broken. And as you get older, you get closer to the wedding day. Yeah, I mean, you see, this changes everything, doesn't it? Because, because what happens is so much of the time in holiness churches is that the older we get, the more insecure we get about our faith. No, I can prove this to take you won't, to retirement places in our movement where people have been missionaries and pastors and theologians their entire life. But when they get to the last couple of years, there is a fear and an uncertainty and a trembling and a wondering if they're going to make it. It's almost as if they're worried about a judgment. Shouldn't it be more like a bride on the eve of her wedding? She's nervous to be sure, but she's not afraid. No, she's walked with him all these years. She knows him. Tomorrow's the big day, not the last day. Shouldn't it be different if salvation is a wedding? And the problem in this wedding is that they have run out of wine. This is significant. Wine in the Old Testament is a symbol that um, God is, is, is favoring or blessing someone's life. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he said, may God give you fields of new grain and new wine. The prophet Joel said, when God would come upon a nation, the mountains would drip with new wine. Amos said, no, no, the hills will burst forth 
in new wine. Isaiah said in that last day, God himself will prepare a feast, a banquet with all of his people there and he will fill it with aged wine. So it was a day where wealth was measured not in terms of one's money or what you possessed. It was measured in terms of your land and what that land could produce. And so when there were weddings, you really put it on because you showed your friends and your family your wealth, if you will. I have the land, I have the crops, I have what the crops are producing. God has been good. And they get into the wedding and they start running out of wine. There's a woman's quarters that's over back by where they store the wine. Mary must be in them. She's the first to notice that the wine's run out. Everybody else still having a party. They don't know that what they possess, what they're drinking, is the last of it. And Mary comes to Jesus, and as mothers, only mothers can do, she says almost unimpressed, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, as only messiahs can do, why do you bring me into this? <laughs> My time has not yet come. Then Mary, almost completely ignoring what he just said, looks to the servants and just says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. It's as if Mary knows that whatever he just said to me isn't important. It's what he says to you. That's going to be the important thing. And whatever he tells you to do, you better do it. So Jesus finally turns to the servants and says, all right. See those six water pots over there? <laughs> Go fill them with water. Now the water pots say John were the water pots of ceremonial cleansing. So when a Jew would come in off of the road, before the party would begin, there would be a period of cleansing, a washing, if you will, of the outer body that got one ready for the meal. So Jesus says, fill the water pots with water. They fill them, and then he says, now take it over to the master of ceremonies. So they take the first cup over to the master of ceremonies, and he starts to drink what is now wine. Nobody knows when this happened. They only know that it happened. And he says, holy cow. That's not in the original. I just put that there. He said, this is incredible. You saved the very best stuff for last. He says, normally what people do is they serve the best wine first and then after their guests are half lit, they bring in the other stuff so they can't taste the difference. But what you've done is you've actually saved the best stuff for the very end. And the story abruptly ends. 
So if I'm hearing the story right, it goes like this. We're having a party and someone ran out of wine and the first thing they hear is do whatever he tells you to do because when you do what he tells you to do, it unleashes the power of God to change things. And when God changes things, they are better than they've ever been before. That's the story. Can I say that I think some of us uh, in, in, in the room this morning are at a place where we are out of wine. Now, please don't read this as something that is only for sinners. No, no, no. Remember, the problem in the story of the miracle, the problem is not that people have sinned. The problem is that they have run out of wine. The problem is not death or evil or rebelliousness. The problem is that their joy has dried up. The problem is not that they're having too much fun. The problem is that they're not having enough fun, if I'm reading this right. So this is not just a story about sinners finding Jesus. To the contrary, it's a story about anyone who has run out of favor, of prosperity, of the goodness of God. Sometimes that happens to you because you're religious. Because you got religion before you got wine. So please, 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 please don't hide behind some action that you've taken in the past. I'm asking you, do you have a religion of joy, of anticipation? That's the question. What is the joy index in your religion? Wherever you are in that, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> if I just described you a moment ago, I hope you will find us. Me, one of our staff, some of the laity that stand at the counters in the hallways, I hope you'll, I hope you'll not leave today. I hope you'll find us. I hope you'll say, no, that's an apt description of me. I have a joyless salvation. But whatever advice you get, we can help you take the next step. But whatever advice that we give you, it will probably sound something like this. Whatever he asks you to do, just do it. It, it might sound to you silly or awkward or unnatural, like putting water in water pots. You cannot make the connection between that 
and the miracle that you need. But if you will stop for a moment and just do what he asks you to do, you make possible things that you could never do. Never do. The thing you must not do is hold God accountable to answer every question that your reason can conjure up. You do what he asks you to do and it will open up new channels for you, whether you can see it or not. Which leads to the third thing. You will find that Jesus has the power to change things. I love this. Oh, I love this. Because I think we've almost become a culture cynical of change. If we weren't cynical of change, we wouldn't drag up things people did 20 years ago as if that were the defining act and nothing else happened since. I think we've grown cynical of change. And I'm telling you this morning, if you do what he tells you to do, it opens up the possibility for entire transformation. I was asking one of our chemists in our church, Dennis Brinkman, uh, uh, I, I said to him not long ago, I said, yeah, you know chemistry, how would you turn water into wine? He said, you can't do it. I said, uh-huh. It happened. He said, I'll have to think about it. I'll send you a reply. So he wrote a reply. I want to read this to you. I did this because I love smart people. And, and I love when smart people explain miracles. Brace yourself. Water molecules are made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen, H2O. And wine is water with around 13% ethanol, C2H6O. That's what I thought. <laughs> with traces of things that give it color and flavor. Now, for this to happen, the carbon is introduced and the hydrogen and the oxygen ratios change dramatically. Getting carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms to bond with each other in just the right configuration to make ethanol instead of dimethyl ether, which has exactly the same formula is hugely complex. The normal pathway of sugar or starch fermentation takes days under carefully controlled situations with a customized catalyst to help doing it in five minutes in clay pots? Not so much. Then he said, it is just beyond what most of us can feel comfortable explaining. My point is that when Jesus changes 
something, he changes it at the smallest, most intimate, deepest level. He changes the molecular structure of a thing. He changes the essence of a thing. The wine is not water calling itself wine. It ain't water acting like wine. It's new. It's different. It's continuous yet discontinuous with the thing that it was. And even if you can explain it, you can't make it happen. So whatever he asks you to do, do it. And, and it will open up new possibilities for you where God, whether he does it in five minutes or he does it in five years, God will change the very nature that is in you. So your desires and your instincts and your ways are completely different, you won't be the same. You have to believe this. I know that some of us this morning have believed that at one time and it didn't happen or it didn't happen like this. We said to ourselves, I believed it, I stepped back and I just waited for God to do what only God can do and he hasn't done it yet. And so what we have done is we have read every passage and reinterpreted that passage around our experience. We have actually gotten to a place where God has to answer to us and to our skepticism. And I'm telling you this morning, however hard or unreasonable this seems for some of you, believe it again, man, believe it again. It happens. Far more often than you think. And when it happens, it's the best stuff ever. The water of ceremonial cleansing becomes the wine at your wedding. I come from the holiness tradition and I'm proud of it. I'll die in it. So I mean no disparaging remarks when I talk about us this way. But I believe that one unintended consequence of the holiness tradition is that we have a religion of ceremonial cleansing and not a religion of new wine. We actually believe that the most significant thing that happens, I don't think we believe it, we sure don't say it, but we act like it. The most significant thing that happens in sanctification is sin is completely taken away. It's almost as if once we have gotten rid of sin, a person is new. No, he's not. He's just a sinless version of old. That's called sterile. 
holiness is life. Holiness is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 14. Holiness is the rise of virtue so that sin cannot grow there anymore. See, our problem is not that we have sin. It's what we lack. It ain't just what we have. And what we lack makes what we have all the worse. So some of you, your problem is not lust. Your problem is you don't know what love is. Now you think you do, but you don't. Or there is no room for lust. It's a predator, it's a parasite that preys off of a weakened victim, deficient in something else. Your problem isn't anger, your problem is that you don't know justice. And so every time you, you go to get justice, it goes off into some form of flagrant anger and you can't just cast the demon out. You have to have something more whole take its place. That's what I'm saying. Brendan Manning tells an old Hasidic tale of a young boy that lived his entire life in poverty. And when he died, he went to heaven. And God asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Name it, anything. Boy thought long and hard, and then he said, I would like a fresh baked roll with real butter. And all of heaven wept. He'd been poor so long, he can't even imagine something more than that. Though I think in our tradition somehow we have created people, not willingly, not even knowingly, but we have created people who can only ask for a roll in butter. And I'm telling you this morning, God can do miracles and he can do them in your life 